0: Welcome to The Digital Patient, where we discuss the latest advancements in digital patient engagement and share stories from the front lines. I'm your host, Alan Sardana, and with me as always is Simil Sunday CEO, Dr. Joshua Liu. Today, we're joined by our very special guest, Dr. Eric Makney. Dr. Makney is a sports medicine orthopedic surgeon at Henry Ford Health in Detroit Metro, Michigan, and team physician for the Detroit Lions. At Henry Ford Health, Dr. Makney currently serves as the senior clinical advisor for patient-reported outcome measures. And the director for orthopedic quality and informatics from this work he launched proterra health a joint venture with the health system proterra health partners with health plans providers and employers to improve musculoskeletal health by personalizing care journeys according to patient-centered data dr mackney completed his undergraduate degree at mit followed by a combined md and mba at harvard his orthopedic surgery training was at columbia university in new york city followed by a fellowship in shoulder and sports medicine, orthopedic surgery at Rush University in Chicago. Dr. Mackney, Eric, welcome to the show. I'm very excited to be here. Thanks so much, guys. It is amazing having you on. You've led such an inspiring and dedicated career that's really focused around the patients, whether it's exceptional orthopedic care, or your extensive clinical body of research on sports medicine, PROs and solutions that that can greater impact that scale patients, as well as giving back to the community in various ways. I'm really curious to start the conversation, like what drew you initially to sports medicine and orthopedics? Yeah,
1: it's actually a really good question and and we don't get asked that often. My parents are physicians. Uh, So my mom's a primary care doc, my dad's a cardiologist. They had a practice together. And so growing up, I would always visit them. And so my view of medicine as a kid was just office, in that office, it was primary care. And I didn't know my dad did as a cardiologist, but I, I just knew that was primary care. And my, as I learned more about cardiology and about surgery, I remember shattering my dad's buddies who were open-heart surgeons. And seeing bypassers, like, you know, this was what I was, I don't know, back, back in the early 90s or maybe mid-90s, seeing open-heart surgeries by the anesthesia, seeing all the bypass, everything was open. And I was like, okay, I want to do this. And so I requested to volunteer at our hospital to work in the ER where all the stuff was going down. And they ran out of space in the ER. And they're like, I was devastated. I was by like ninth grade. I was devastated that I couldn't get this volunteer job in the ER. And they sent me to the physical therapy ward. And I had no idea what that was about. And so I was like the, uh, the ice I had the ice bucket boy. I, w- I would fill people's ice boxes up while they're recovering from other surgeries. And I was that's when I started to see about sports medicine, joining replacement, learning with people. These are patients that were like motivated. They were not all super obese and bad cholesterol. They were trying to get back to play sports. I played college tennis, so I grew up playing sports. And that's what got me into War's Weeks Sports Medicine. So I basically was hooked on sports medicine since I was 16. There was a period of time when Nip-Tuck came out that I thought I wanted to be a plastic surgeon. And then I saw all the craziness in that show and I want to know part of it. And so it's basically been a weird focus of mine in sports medicine. So
2: so your, your brother, Melvin is also an orthopedic surgeon. So you both ended up in orthopedics. Like what's the story around around
1: him? Yeah. He also <laughs> volunteer on the same physical therapy ward? So my brother's two years younger. He's a spine surgeon and a cervical spine specialist at the Brigham at, at, uh, in, at Harvard. And we did, we played tennis together in college on um, tennis team. So we did high school together college together. We were the same fraternity in college. We did med school. He did the MD, MBA as well. We were in the same residency and we finally diverged at fellowship when we were, I was, when he, we both got to be 32. So he went to spine and I was a sports all the way. Um, so he's a smarter than the two of us. <laughs> <laughs> That's really funny. Well, so speaking
0: um, of being smart, you know, most physicians, they go and get their MBA later in life and you actually got yours kind of concurrently with medical school. And so, I was wondering, you know, what, what's the thinking behind getting an MBA so early and what have been maybe some of the benefits for you as a physician leader over time?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. I got the MBA, I think it was, I was class of 2010. Um, and we got, I applied to the program around 07 or something like that or, yeah. And so, at, at MIT, the biology track, which is, it's actually relatively short. And so, I actually was in a situation where I could have finished in three years. Um, but I decided to do a fourth year. My parents always struggled with the financial part of medicine. They, they got beat up a lot on that because that was when the EMRs were starting to get mandated. They had a practice of two, right? To have a private practice of two docs now is like, that's that's hard as it is now. And then think of the transition. So my parents would really encourage me to take business classes. So as a senior, I started taking a bunch of stuff in microeconomics, macro, organization behavior, optimization, negotiations, finance one, finance two. And so I had already knew I, I wanted to, Understand the business world and the business of healthcare. Well, Harvard was one of the first programs that I was aware of that did a streamlined path of five years. So it was for five, the way they did it was really nice. And and I almost didn't apply because back then, and probably still a little bit now, but not as much, um, being an MBA in medicine was looked down on, right? It meant that you are clinically hardcore. And I remember the first several papers I published, I didn't put the MBA on it, I just right. put Eric Mackney, MD. I didn't want to give the wrong impression that it wasn't a hardcore clinical. And so I waited to the last application cycle to apply to the business school because I had already done a lot of the coursework. So I was like, ah, I kind of know it. But, and so I'm obviously very happy I did, but it was it was a time when my mentor in med school also did not put his MBA on his on his papers. And so that was what did it. When I finally was like, look, there's enough good in this. I'll do my own thing clinically and prove myself. And, and that's kind of how it started. But the program there was... Very good, very cutting edge. Back then, only thirteen of the one hundred and fifty students applied, and now I think shortly afterwards it got very oversubscribed, and so they were turning people away. But it was a great time to do it, and we kind of it was almost like a full MBA experience, like a full time immersion. That was great.
2: How has that changed, like the way you you practice medicine today? Like, are are you a lot more aware of like cost structures in your your clinical practice or or things like that, or? How do you think you do things differently than folks who haven't done an MBA in medicine?
1: Yeah, I think there's two parts to that. So the MBA, what's crazy is that like, now that I've started my own company and I'm reaching out to folks, people always just say, oh, it's it, you go, it's for the networking. I never bought into that. Yeah. Wow, is it true? Like the people who we hung out with are all like, I mean, I'm re-engaging them now and they're all doing crazy things as leaders of different companies and startups and big healthcare payers. Like some of my colleagues and friends are like, big shots in these companies. And so I think that, you know, the stuff you learn in the books is is fine, but it's well, like everything, like you know, we learn organic chemistry. Like how much of that do we use now? So I think business school, first and foremost, just exposes exposed me to a world that was outside medicine. And in medicine, we spent all day focusing on things like the Krebs cycle, glycolysis, organic chemistry structures, stuff that's totally relevant and very microscopic, literally microscopic, atom level. And we lose the force for the trees on like, what happens if a patient can't afford medication? What does it matter what the medication does, right? Or how do you deliver care? How do you actually make it financially viable or in- align incentives? And I think that part of it, you do learn in the business school. Um, I also learned a lot about venture capital. That's why I wanted to focus on and innovation entrepreneurship. On the other side of that coin though, is actually it was in college at MIT and it might, it's not certainly unique to MIT, but it, it is very characteristic of that place is that at, at, at school, there were found people that started companies like 22, 23, 24, and big companies, right? Like the, the Dropbox and all those. So Facebook, we were the fourth school in that. So, you know, the, the contemporaries down the street. And what you learn in an atmosphere like that is that anything's possible, right? It is totally normal to say, hey, listen, I've got a great job. I'm my seventh year in practice. I'm making a lot of money. Let me go ahead and risk a lot of that and start a company that I don't know if it's gonna work because it could work. And I think we could do something really cool. And I think being surrounded by that mentality of, yeah, why not try it out? Why not try to build something? Why not try to take a risk? That I think has shaped my thinking very heavily. And again, I don't think it's unique to to, to where I went to school, it, but it is, I think that's even had more of a mark on me than the MBA, but they're both very yeah. relevant.
2: I think that the network piece is such a great, great point. I mean, when people ask me like, hey, Josh, like, should I join this like accelerator or some sort of like incubator program? And I always tell them, hey, you know, forget whatever the curriculum is in these programs. Look at who the mentors and the alumni are because the network is really what you're getting out of it. And if you like what you see, in like the mentors or the alumni, like, great, do the program. But, like, don't even look at the curriculum. That's not really going to be the value out of it at the end of the day. So, like, I totally agree with you on that.
1: Yeah, and you don't even know what you're going to come your way or what door is gonna open or, I mean, even with, with you, Josh, it was on, you know, I started getting a little more active on Twitter or just at least we're consuming it and you reach out to somebody and a lot of people won't, well, it's, it's funny, it's like, you know, the, the higher up the 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 food chain I get, the totem pole I get in my professional life, like the lower I feel because like I'll reach out to folks on LinkedIn or Twitter or cold reach out and like, I'll have 23 year olds not return <laughs> my call. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, usually as, as a surgeon, we're, we're kind of used to people more inbound but doing this whole startup thing, it, it's like it's it just another another step where as a higher I get, the lower I feel. But, but you know, you reach out to some folks and then you will resonate. Like, you know, that's how we connected and here we are today. And, and I've picked your brain on a bunch of stuff. And I think that that networking mentality, if you just, it, and you know what else is interesting is that with networking, and, and you know this, both of you guys know this full well, like we always think of networking as like, what can we get out of it? And we, those who do it well, and, and I'm not saying I'm there yet. But the more you like help, the more you, it just comes back ten x. And I think that that is also something that it's certainly not like explicitly ingrained in 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 college or business school, but it's something that I think people learn with time.
2: So many great points. If if we could just unpack a couple real quick. So one is, yeah, I forgot to mention. So Eric and I actually met through Twitter. So I think you're actually the first guest we've had that I'm um, happy because of Twitter. I don't know, Alan, if I'm misremembering someone, but I mm-hmm. think this is the first time.
1: Yeah, I so, reached out to you uh, several months ago. I'm like, oh, this is an MD founder of a company that seems to be actually like like with a product and sales and so they're doing something. So I should probably reach out and see if we can get some advice. And it's funny, like I'll, I I call my brother today because he's my co-founder. And I'm like, hey, listen, I met, I met a new guy on Twitter. And he's like, congratulations. I'm like, because he hears me say it all <laughs> the time now. Like, that, like I'm just calling like random people and seeing <laughs> who we're trying to call and see if we can start a conversation and see if there's some synergy or compliment. Everyone's in the same rat race and admittedly in very different parts
0: but yeah. totally. So,
2: so i love the twitter story and i love your second point about just like uh, code calling and, and having humility to just like randomly contact people and just see what serendipity happens and i'll share a quick story that actually your sort of reminds me of so when we were raising our seed round maybe seven years ago i didn't really know that many investors like i didn't have a lot of folks who could introduce me and refer me and all that so i was going down LinkedIn, Google search Angel as I'm looking up physicians who Angel invested and just randomly contacting physicians. And I met one surgeon who actually you know, met with me and said, that's really not up my alley. And I said, no problem, that's fine. And then a week later, out of the blue, he emails me saying, you know, I was talking to my brother, who's also a surgeon and telling him about your company. and He was actually a lot more interested than I am. Yeah, so nice. I'm going to connect you to him like, oh, great. And so I met his brother. And like, after 30 minutes, he was like, oh my gosh, like, this is the future I'm going to invest. And who would have known that it was the brother of a guy I randomly called contacted yeah, I I,
1: I, I, mean, I need more of those phone calls coming in. <laughs> so, but you know, and, and uh, it, it's by, cause I, you know, as a health system leader, right? Overseeing a lot of these initiatives, I'm the person on the other table where the inbound of vendors is like, it's like an onslaught. It's all the time. And. And before I would just ignore them. I would just be like, whatever. And now, like I feel the pain because obviously you start in company, you're you're in sales, that's what it is for a long time. So now I respond to almost as much as I can every inbound and say, look, I'm not the right person, but here's a person to talk to. And if it's compelling enough, I'll just make the warm intro because I, I get, it's this kind of blind faith and karma that that, the gods will bestow upon me back if I keep doing this. So I try to help, but it's funny because I've always been on the other side listening to these pitches and listening to these, seeing these slide decks of these 8x ROI in six months and all this stuff. And now I'm trying to figure out how to
0: be on the other side of it.
1: You have way more empathy now.
2: That's so table. That's fascinating.
0: Very true. Yeah. 100%. And acting like a sponge, right? Like learning from everything, every person that you're encountering, every cold call that you make, and taking that yep. knowledge back with you gaining more empathy. That's awesome. Eric, following the first wave of COVID, you took on additional responsibilities as the director of quality and informatics for the orthopedics line at Henry Ford Health. I'm curious, what drove you down that path and why around that time? Um, So a lot of folks aren't familiar with the concept of a
1: service line. And admittedly, I'm still relatively young in my my understanding of how these service lines really function best. But in, in essence, at Henry Ford Health, we have basically five hospitals at each kind of relatively distinct. And over the last several years, they've come into become a service line where the orthopedic service line, at least from an orthopedic perspective, the goal is to try to standardize as much care as possible to promote quality, cost savings, financial performance, skill development, whatever it is. And that service line was coming about, you know, 2019, I think. And so there was this need to look at data outside the confines of a single hospital and look across five hospitals. I think we have 135 providers between surgeons non-surgeon physicians and advanced practice providers. I had been looking to patient afford outcomes since 2014, studying them as a research tool, as a quality tool, as a decision-making tool. And so we how we got started in patient afford outcomes was basically, you know, that was what I was working on, was trying to get that so that we had these outcome tools for patients when we make decisions. And so it was a natural evolution of taking on more responsibility and moving out of a When I started at Henry Ford, I was 20% clinical research, 80% clinician. That 20% FTE protection was a vehicle for me to say, let me do something that's a little different from research, but still rooted in the scientific principles of care delivery. And so that's how that came about. And quality, at the time as a new service line, like these quality measures, even basics like mortality, right? We needed someone that would like cone in really look at mortality and what we found was that like just by looking at it we realized that if there's a few patients that were coded incorrectly or they let's say they came in with a tibia fracture and and also had a heart attack and then died from the heart attack just fixing the coding to more appropriateness actually was a huge driver of performance and more appropriateness right so we needed someone to really dive in and that's kind of how that all evolved. Can
2: I ask you like and then we're going to get into PROs that's one of your your expertises (laughs) But we've seen way more progress with PROs and PROMs in orthopedics than I think any other specialty in medicine. I'm wondering if you have any insight into why is that? Like, what has orthopedics figured out, and or what's motivated orthopedics in a way that we just haven't seen any other specialties yeah. when it comes to PROs and
1: PROMs? So I was doing a lot of research in hand surgery as a medical student. That was my mentor, and he was phenomenal. I work with him today. He's at Henry Ford, and uh, he's a hand surgeon. So I did hand research. And if you look at the outcome scores again, this would be 2005, uh, 2010, when I was doing these research studies, a lot of people were using things like the Gartland and Worley score, which is a physician-derived score that said, okay, what does the effort look like? What does the deformity look like? Okay. Subjective, how bad is the patient in pain? Let's give them a score of excellent, good, fair, or poor. And, and that's our score. Well, you can have somebody with a horrible deformity be perfectly fine, right? Like a 75-year-old woman with a wrist deformity, so I mean, I almost not even notice it. And so I think the field started evolving understanding that like these tools are not physician. They should not be physician drive metrics. They should be patient drive metrics. And a big part of orthopedics is our joint replacements, right? You have a very reproducible surgery that's done on the masses, you know, whatever millions a year, and you can be really quality focused on that reproducible amount. And with orthopedics, the big drivers of outcomes are pain and function improvement, right? And so that I think, and then a lot of orthopedic surgeons are, Quantitative, number driven like th- that's just how we think. And so, I think that whole melting pot, what led to things like big registries in Europe, right? Those Scandinavian registries, the Danish registries, the European registries on joint replacement, really taking PROMs and really centralizing care around them and output around them. So, I think that's why Orthopedics has done that. And then the, the cornerstone of research is is PROMs, right? And I think a lot of my effort has been trying to figure out how to take PROMs out of a research tool, which Admittedly, 99 point something percent of surgeons don't do and make it a clinical tool. And that's kind of where that whole how process started. Let me unpack
2: that a little bit. What do you think has to change in the environment so that more and more surgeons switch from it being purely a research tool to more, at least, a quality improvement or a data care tool?
1: So, for the last several years, we have threatened anytime I give a talk. Like, problems are going to get you. You better measure them or you're going to have to be forced to measure them. And measuring them is not easy, right? That's whatever the last several years of research has been on that. And two things needed to happen. One was that insurance would mandate it. And CMS in their new 2023 inpatient rule proposal for hip and knee replacements, and admittedly a small proportion, just the inpatient, have now laid the map in the groundwork for requirement of patient report outcome measures. And the essence is that they have to collect proms pre-op and one year post-op. The second thing that has, and then we know what if CMS does it, the payers are just going to do it, right? And and no one's paying the clinicians or the systems to help collect them, even though there's a cost to doing so. It's just like, you got to figure it out. Fine. The second thing is if there, which hasn't happened, is if there's just a CPT code. Yeah. If you just like, like my mentor, Kevin Bozek, who's one of the big players in value-based care in orthopedics. He always says, I don't know if this is his original saying or if he got it from somewhere else, but if you go to an orthopedic clinic, we have no problem lining every patient up, putting them on a cold metal slab, irradiating them for an x-ray that they may or may not need and not seeing a patient until that x-ray is done, right? For elective surgeons, the x-ray doesn't matter, right? You can have somebody with bone-on-bone arthritis, but if their function is normal, they do not need a surgery, right? That's just, they just don't need it. Maybe some do, but most do not. Um, And CMS has adopted that, right? That's what they're looking at these scores. and so. But but to do a two-minute health assessment to, for physical, mental, and pain health, whoa, that, that's I don't have time for that. Or to understand if a patient has active untreated depression, I don't care if that leads to twenty percent higher complication rate. I don't have time for that. And so what happens is the EMRs have not built that in, right? They, EMRs, you, there are major EMRs which I'm not going to call out, but major ones that you cannot measure PROMs on in any sort of high fidelity. When those two things change and one has already changed, now the EMRs have to follow suit, right? If the EMRs, which we all live in and depend on, allow for problem collection, it'll be part of care, right? And again, if somebody sees me for a meniscus tear, I'm a sports medicine surgeon, right? So meniscus tear, rotator cuff tear, nothing, nothing like acute or functional. I mean, if they're doing fine on an objective measure, like there's, I don't need to do anything. They don't even see me, just go home, do some exercises and live your life, you're fine. And so we're starting to understand that this is really important, but the IT infrastructure and the integration has to get there. And it's right. starting. One of those two dollars have already
0: fallen.
2: I think that's a fantastic point where like you're getting at like, how do you reduce the friction to doing something as part of standard clinical care? Part of it definitely is like our current IT systems like the EHR have to make it easy for to be part of your workflow. Part of the research that you've done in PROs, are there kind of like one or two strategies you've found that even... in outside the EHR where you're still having to somehow collect them. What are two strategies you found to increase adoption or response rates? I yeah. think that's worked out well for you?
1: And I, I will say a lot of what I've done in proms and PROs has been built on the foundation of folks like Dr. Judy Baumhauer from Rochester. I kind of just copied what she did. Maybe a little differently because of a different institution, but I kind of copied her. And so, I'm going to give a lot of credit to, the, to her on this. The one thing she always says is that the process has to be invisible. Oh. So, on an average Monday morning, I might see from 8 a.m. to 1 p.m., 30 to 35 to 36 patients, right? My PROM collection rate, and we do about okay. three to four PROMs per patient, is about 90-something percent, yeah. right? And I'm not atypical in my system. I have patients that see as many as I do, if not more, and they're still in the high 90s. It's because the process is invisible. To be invisible, it's got to be fully integrated into clinical, and IT workflows, and it's got to take less than a few minutes because there's no wait time. You're just going in quick, 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 quick. The second part of it is the data has to be available in real time. I have to have the data in front of me when I look at the patient, right? If I'm judging an elective surgery, like a a non-structural surgery, like a meniscus tear Uh or a rotator cuff tear, if it's not causing a lot of functional issues, knee replacement is one, right? We need to see that data in real time and we have to engage the patient with it. Those are two things that have to happen. If you have those, you'll use it. And then there's a whole kinds of other quality improvement tracking you can do to make sure docs are using them. But those are two cornerstones. After that, everything is nice to have.
0: Yeah. And I know, Eric, you've been an advocate for automation in PROs to make them uh, seemingly invisible with the workflow. I think one of the steps in your workflow is even on the patient intake form, you're introducing that very first PRO, which I think is phenomenal and such a great way to weave it into the clinical care yeah, that was an idea our CMIO, David Allard, Dr. David Allard had. And, and, you know,
1: we go to conferences and some practices will say, we're having trouble with PROMs because the patient has a clipboard for the intake form. Like, how'd you get hurt, What's your VAS score? Do you smoke, drink, workers comp? And then the PROMs. And the key is, it should just be one process, yeah, sure. right? Make the intake form a PROM. And, and, and at FORD, we actually looked at the intake forms and we have, let's say, in our main medical group, about 30 or 40 surgeons. We had, each surgeon had their own intake form, three or four pages long, and some had review of systems because that was important back then for billing pre-2021 or something. And some docs had different intake forms depending on the different clinic. So, the front desk was photocopying four or five pages for each patient for their new patient visits. So, what happened is that our PROM infrastructure lives and dies with our front desk who does not report to us. They're a different operating unit. They don't report to orthopedics. They don't have to do anything we ask them to do but by making it easier for them, it becomes sticky. Because if we don't use this process, then they've gotta go back to photocopying. And the intake form, if you look at it, there's a little couple different flavors, but everyone asks pretty much the same questions. So we just switched it on overnight and our department's been awesome and everyone's just bought into it. The other nice thing is that from an operational perspective, if you're seeing lots of patients, you're not doing your notes right away in real time. And so either you have to write down notes like, oh, this is Joe Schmo, 16-year-old with knee pain that I hit on the football field, or the intake form says, I'm Joe Schmo. My injury was in football getting tackled. It happened on January 28th, 2023. My pain score is five. I don't smoke, I don't drink. And then you make it automatic into documentation. So when I do a new patient notes, it automatically floats that information. Now you make it sticky for clinicians. I have some clinicians who are like, I don't care about the problems. I need that intake form automatically fed in right? And so you, you, I think that's what I've been really focusing on is how can we make proms a useful operational tool and a useful clinical tool rather than something we put in the doldrums of research lakes that we pull up for whatever we want to later.
0: Design, Yeah, that's great. That's a fantastic
2: insight. It's like basically add so much value from the proms into the clinician workflow and then they can't live without it.
1: Yeah. And so we've got, like I said, we can, We've probably collected almost nine hundred thousand data points so far wow. in a few years. We, in our service line, we have screened over a hundred thousand patient visits with for depression in orthopedics. Right? I mean, that's kind of wild. We do a PHQ two on every patient. We used to do a PROMS depression. And what's crazy to me is that, like in the beginning, I was, you know, really managing it and making sure the compliance was good. And our goal, ambitiously, was to be at above eighty percent, and we stuck there. And so, we got populations that are very elderly that don't use technology or don't speak English, right? And it's a very diverse, metropolitan area. But I think the stickiness has helped us and the invisibility has helped us stay on a cruise control and not needing babysitting the whole time.
2: Amazing. Good segue to, um, and, and what I love is actually your story makes a lot of sense from a, a narrative point of view. So, you know, you had this incredible expertise in, in TROs and problems. And then more recently, you were motivated to take the expertise and start this this new startup called Proterra Health, where you're using a prom-driven data-centric approach to help guide patients to more appropriate and cost-effective care. Love to learn more about the origin story for Proterra Health and what you're hoping to accomplish.
1: Yeah, as a little backdrop, when I was in college, I entered the MIT 50K competition a few times. I can't remember everything I submitted, but like a couple of times we got to be I'm advanced one round. was wasn't energetic. But I remember like, you know, submitting the idea for a kind of ZocDoc type top physician marketplace in 2005 because I was a first year medical student. And then in residency, we started an online physical therapy company in 2012. The big MSK digital companies actually came around 15 and 16. So we were I've always tried, and in med school, we started a company called Money for Study where you know, we were walking into the med school and it's like, you know, get paid $50 to do an MRI of your brain or get paid $3,000 to do a sleep study. So we made a website that could collate all that. But each time I tried to start a company, I didn't have the financial means or the time means to really work on it. We had a company, PhysiLife, that was a physical therapy company. And we didn't know, we filmed all these physical therapy videos and we didn't know who the customer was. I was a resident at the time. I had no connections, I was a 30 year resident and no money. And so we were trying to pitch this to physical therapy companies. And we actually became a finalist in the Harvard Business School alumni competition for New York on it. And I didn't know, we we didn't know what we were doing. And so I think that now that I've gotten more expertise on problems and how we could democratize these tools um, and also more connections in value-based care and understanding of value-based care, I think I may have a little better insight into where this can go as a company. And so Proterra Health was basically looking at the clinical transformation of Henry Ford, and saying can we democratize this in our primary care sports medicine physicians be about 5 or 6 of them we did a survey and 100% of them look at prom scores before they refer a patient to a surgery right. that's that's probably the most proud of, of anything i've done and 80% of our surgeons say they look at prom scores before they decide for surgery not all time but sometimes and i think that is moving the needle and you i don't know how many unnecessary surgeries we've, pre- we've prevented it's hard, hard to hard it's kind of hard to prove the counterfactual but if we can democratize that to those who don't have a sophisticated IT infrastructure with Epic that can measure prompts, like that's a small minority of surgeons. But if we can make problems so in your face that we're using them, that's the goal of what we're trying to build. And sorry, so, Trevor, you said that
2: 100% of primary care physicians were using the problems to help decide to refer to orthopedics. Was that like any, anyone at Harry Ford was like a PCP was...
1: No, that was just in our orthopedic department. And again, it's only a small oh. subset. Like, you know, we, we have, you know, a handful of primary care s- sports physicians. Man. But like, you know, a lot of patients will come in and say, I've got this meniscus tear. I need to see a surgeon, right? And as a primary care physician, there's not a lot of recourse to push back. And, and you you know, the, the the docs know, or the clinicians know that the patient doesn't need a surgery. But it's it's hard because the MRI is saying they have a an extruded, degenerative, complex, multidirectional meniscus tear. And the patient's getting nervous. But with problems, the provider can say, look, you have this tear, but your function is normal. Your pain is only mildly elevated. You'll probably do. And we've actually published thresholds of if you're under a certain range for function or over a certain range for pain, you will do well with surgery and vice versa. You won't do well with surgery. So now we actually have cutoffs that say you will probably not do well with surgery. So getting that information out there and engaging the patient and the provider Both of them, that's where you kind of change a thinking. So we are at Henry Ford to try to get problems into our fabric of primary care. Primary care has always used problems for like depression screening, right? That's a bit of a (laughs) cornerstone. And the key is where can we use things like pain and functional scores for patients, not just musculoskeletal patients, but heart failure or maternal health, right? This is just, uh, this is not unique to just orthopedics. And
2: so this index that you've built, let's say for orthopedics to kind of give guidance on like thresholds for maybe whether or not they would benefit from, from surgery, for example, if there were other health systems who've kind of reached out saying, Hey, we'd love to be able to kind of access and, and leverage this or sort of index or database you've built, is that still relevant for other systems? Or would you say, you know what, like, we can help you learn how to do it, but you really need to build your own regional data set for it to be relevant to your population. Like, how do you think about the relevance of your data set? Yeah. tissue With other health systems in different places?
1: Well, you know, we published our findings with the cutoff points and others have done so with joint placement. There is a group that published their findings in back and spine surgery with the ODI form. So you can actually plug in the data points from these questionnaires and data points on a web tool and actually will tell you a percent success in surgery. I think my biggest, one of my big gripes with PROMs to date is that we haven't done that research, right? Like we we have these tools and we don't know, there's been some research out there, but not a lot on what is a reference population, right? For a a young, let's say a, a patient who's a 35-year-old black female versus a 65-year-old white male, right? Or whatever, what is a normal score, right? Okay. Because what we think of as normal ranges are, they're not age or gender or demographic matched, right? And so we haven't done that research yet and I think that's been a huge failure and that's part because we don't collect these tools and apply them. So I think we're only scratching the surface on. and there's a lot of debate on how do we use prompts for individual clinical decision-making. That's right. not straightforward, nor is it really super well validated. We have thresholds that we look at, but we as a field have not done that and I think that is what is needs to be done. But I'm still seeing a lot of research. We did a study on promise physical function and upper extremity function on college athletes like literally division one two three athletes and the reference score is very different now we know that these tools are calibrated with 40 year olds but like we should probably know what a normal function score is for an 18 year old athlete right i mean we should know these things so we can make better decisions so if they have a normal score on a meniscus tear but it's really 10 points lower because they're an athlete we need to know that and i think that's
0: got to happen Great. Point. So Eric, I want to shift gears a little bit, but I do think this question might come back full circle to PROs, but you wrote a great article in Harvard Business Review a few years back around the three myths of machine learning in healthcare. The myths were that ML can replace docs, two big data and data scientists will guarantee success, that's a myth, and three successful algorithms will be adopted and utilized. I'm wondering, yeah. if can you unpack the reality behind these myths? I'm laughing because I haven't thought about that paper for a while. <laughs> yeah. And I think it was
1: like, I don't know, 2000, what was it, 16, 17? I yeah, don't I know think it was. Yeah. I think
0: 2017,
1: yeah. And you know, it's funny because all this, this stuff and, the, and, and, then, and then media in the last, or you know, chat, TBT, all that stuff in the last month, and and oh, it passed a, an exam that's rooted in textbook data. It's not hard to, to like that's and so I think that like the question of AI and ML aside, you know, it, it's funny that it's now becoming very relevant. And so I think where founders struggle, right? And Josh, this is no knock on you because I know you finished med school, but I don't know if you lived the whole, <laughs> the painful existence of a practicing physician dealing with workflows and, and stresses there, but you probably have a very good appreciation for it. But like, I think some founders who don't have that appreciation will come up with a great tool that's got a lot of bells and whistles and it doesn't integrate, Right. And it doesn't integrate not only from a tech stack perspective, but like from a workflow perspective. You can have a tool that integrates perfectly in the EMR, but if the physician knows there, or it relies on any external thing, is you're in trouble. I saw something online where someone was asking, "How come you know apps aren't used as much for clinicians as they are on the EMR?" Because people are on the EMR slogging away trying to get the documentation. They're not on the EMR to discover. They just yeah. want to put it in so they can bill and document, right? And I think that developing technologies without that clinical understanding of the workflow, not how do you treat a patient with COPD or how do you treat a patient who's crashing with a heart, you know, heart issue. It's how do you build, how do you put a code in? How do you, like for us at, at Proterra now, everything I do is like, well, would a physician or surgeon use this? Sure. And if so, why wouldn't they use it? And the reason why they wouldn't use it is overpowering. It's almost like, and I think that article really harmed the fact that A, and nothing's changed, right? You go to GPT and ask them some stuff, nothing's clinically relevant enough to use in real time. Like right? nothing. And I think I saw an article today where like Bing is having trouble now with yeah. GBT integration, like even for day-to-day stuff, right? AI takes what we've done and spits it back to us in different ways. It's, it's fancy regressions, all that stuff. And I think that like, you know, the tech alone is not going to do it. In more startup founders, I bet, and Josh, you may, and Alan, you may have experienced this too. Like the people who are successful have these like really Probably shoddy MVPs that are horrible, but they get to the patient part of it. And the yeah. other thing about healthcare my sister is a clinical informaticist at the Mayo Clinic and, and she's part of our team at Patera. She talked to us a lot about this and says, you know, you cannot just make a Twitter for healthcare. It is a human to human interaction, right? And there are expectations of healthcare as a patient that you're not going to pay for anything, right? There's no, it doesn't matter what the values patients want. More expensive stuff because they're paying for insurance because they're not paying the bill and neither the physicians, right? In some ways, neither the hospitals. And so I think not understanding those things are going to be are critical flaws for founders. And we're trying to avoid that as much
2: yeah. as we can. I, I totally agree. I think one of the things that, that I've learned, even though I haven't lived the full cycle of a, a practicing clinician, but I I think I have both that humility around kind of limitations of, of technology in healthcare. And so like, I think what I believe now is technology is a great tool, but it's not enough alone to drive transformation in fact the more important thing is change management so technology is easy the change management the human piece is sure. like far harder to your point and so like whenever like i talk to people who ask me well josh like what is seamless MDS these like differentiators in the market and all that and you know you know investors want to hear like some fancy thing yeah. like fact <laughs> ai and that, that stuff doesn't matter right it doesn't a, matter at all they're like what's gonna what's gonna reduce fr- friction to adoption by clinicians and it's things like you said like EHR integration. It's clinical evidence that you have confidence yeah. that this works. It's things that fit my workflow.
1: Well, it's here's a, here's an anecdote stuff. that, that sums it up. And so, there's a phys- primary care physician who has who has sent me patients since I started practice almost seven years ago. Has been very, he's been wonderful. And I had talked about some of the stuff we're doing Proterra. And I was asking him, like, you know, when you do make referrals, is it in the EMR? He's part of Epic. He's part of our system. And he's like, Oh no, no, I just tell, I just asked the MA. She, she helps me. And, and it just shows you like, it's a total bypass of technology, right? There's, there's no order, there's no integration. His staff does it for him, which is fine, but like, that's how a lot of people work. They have their staff helps them. Like they're not putting the order, they're bouncing around seeing patients. And if you don't understand that, your integration will not help. And I think, and Josh, you saw it enough in your primary chair clinics and all the wards and the ICUs and the ER, so you saw it. But like, if you don't think of that first and center, like, That just blew, it blew my mind. I was like, I, I've known this dog for seven years. And I still blind because a lot of people put orders in the computer and we, we were going around and talking to docs about Proter a little bit and the, I was like, yeah, you can text us. and like, oh no no, you have to put an order. So it's just that 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 philosophy that it's got to be workflow driven and it's not the same for everybody.
2: Yeah and, and thinking that you could just reinvent entire workflows for incredibly busy clinicians is, is just it's you just can't. It's great have to collaborate with the existing workflows for sure.
1: I'm always impressed when there is a, a startup that has no clinicians on the team. I'm like, how do they how do they do this? I admire them because we're trying to aspire to that, and it's just it's impressive because even getting an audience. When I stop by, if I stop by a physician in the office, as as a surgeon, like I feel perfectly comfortable saying, "Can I talk to one of the docs in the office and talk to them about whatever I'm doing?" I did that when we were starting a practice. When I was starting a practice, I was going door to door. I was giving talks at baseball facilities. I was giving talks at primary care, clinics, physical uh-huh. therapy. I was sales, right? We were starting elective practice. And like, it's so much easier for me to talk to clinicians because I'm living the same pain. And to have a surgeon who's trying to improve value-based care and decrease the number of surgery to do it, it's, it's a compelling value proposal.
2: The, the funny thing is the innovators who don't have clinical experience, the good thing is that you are way more naive, meaning that like if you were clinical, more often than not, you're like, "No, this is not going to work. Exactly. <laughs> What's the point in trying to fix things?" Don't yeah. no listen to me. But when you're like not in healthcare, you're like, "Oh no, listen to me. Of course, I'll, of course, I'll change that. Of course." <laughs>
1: and it's funny is like I hear about startups that are like, "Like, yeah, we can improve billing." You find hmm. me a physician, a private care physician. I don't care about billing and revenue. They're there, but they are certain like subset, right? You can't say that every physician cares. And the ones who care about the billing are really fascinated with the business side of medicine. And I love that, right? They're trying to figure out how to be efficient, how to be operational, how to... I think maximizing revenue is important. I really do. So I, I bond well with them. But a lot of physicians don't care. Like, whatever. I've had some say, you you guys keep the billing. I'm like, that's not how it works, but, but fine. But, you know, like a lot of people just don't care. And that understanding of, that lack of understanding that not everyone is driven by the, you know, by one incentive can also be very devastating.
2: Under percent That's a fantastic point. Actually, just curious. So like now that you've been on both sides of the table, if you were to give advice to some of these non-clinical entrepreneurs, innovators who are trying to reach out to people in healthcare to get their attention, and let's say they were to send you a cold email, like what would you advise? Like what's the best way to break through the noise if you're trying to, you know, land a meeting with someone like yourself?
1: Yeah, the big question is what justifications you have that you think the system is broken, that you can fix it. And it's not to mean that it's not the okay. case, right? But like, it's like when I was doing physical life as a whatever resident, I didn't know the system was broken and I didn't know how to fix it, even though I was an orthopedic surgery resident. Now I have a little different vantage point because I've been living in it. And so if you're a 25-year-old founder trying to fix healthcare, you better have a very good justification to know that you're onto something. And, and I'm not saying you're not, But it would be helpful if you had a, you know, like, why not have a clinician or a subject matter expert or a health plan leader or whatever? Like, why not have somebody on the team that's helping you make these calls? If an orthopedic surgeon called me or or a healthcare leader called me, I'm going to answer the phone. But if it's a 25-year-old that's saying that I know how you can, I don't know, do whatever, like, I'll talk to them now because I'm I'm more sympathetic. But, like, I'm going to first be asking, like, how do you know this is relevant? because even I don't know what's relevant in my own field, and I'm struggling with it. So how do you know what's relevant? And what background do you have that is that makes it relevant? Then I'll listen to you, or at least then I'll push forward what you're trying to trying to do.
2: I think that's one of like the, the most fascinating things I've learned about like the healthcare technology world, or healthcare in general. When it comes to these sorts of relationships with like um, industry and, and clinical, and any other like industry, it's so common for like let's call it vendors or companies to be on stage teaching each other things. But in healthcare, like that's a no, no, in healthcare, you actually, you want clinicians being on stage describing the innovations because no one trusts vendors, but, it's such yeah. a different world. And I think well, it's really valid. You want to hear from your your peers who you trust.
1: Yeah. And you know, I'm going to come, I'm shifting my conferences that I go to now because it used to be one orthopedic. Now it's variable because you know, what we're doing, the health system and Terra, and it's funny, like I, I know, you, you know, people have the booths and they've got the vendor tags. We, I think we've talked about this, Josh. And if you're a clinician navigating among the masses, the networking and the, the warm leads, look, they're all pan out, but like the warm leads are like, when I give a talk about proms, I don't talk about Potera, but people yeah. come up to me and then Potera comes up, right? And so being that subject matter expert or having somebody on your team, that CMO or whatever, chief strategy officer, like, I am always impressed with companies who don't have that. I don't know. That's that's Herculean that you can accomplish this without it because your life would probably be easier if you had a real bona fide subject matter expert that's on the team and and maybe it's hard to find them. Or, but I think physicians are much more open to those things now.
2: Bridge, I think I heard a stat a couple of years ago that I think a third or something of Stanford's like graduating medical school class um, is not practicing clinically or, or chooses to work for a startup or something else. So...
1: It's definitely changing. It's definitely changing. It's yeah. Th- th- that's your that's the other end of the spe- <laughs> spectrum. Oh, <yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> at, at Harvard, after I left, I think there was all these protests, and it, it is our policy like right? you can't take a pen from from pharma, so I, I, or any industry company, you can't take a pen, a dinner, nothing like that. And, and and I I see a lot of merit in that rule because there is conflict of interest unless you take a pen from every company, right? <laughs> like you're <laughs> like, like like, orthopedics is very prevalent. been we're in the news all the time about this kind of stuff. Uh, the It just is what it is. And so, yeah, I think that it's a very different philosophy. I think Stanford is on the on, on one extreme. And I think there's, i sure there's a few others like that, but they're definitely on one extreme. And right. I, I like
0: it. I think it's great. <laughs> Self-selecting. Yeah, that's great. So, uh, Eric, I wanted to get your thoughts on this just because you've been pitched probably thousands of times on all these different innovations. I'm really curious, given the digital transformation and innovation that's come about in the past five years, at least there's clearly this explosion of, Different innovations, everything from chatbots and remote patient monitoring and digital care journeys. What are you most excited about today? I think that the,
1: I think it's 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 daunting as well. But I think the shift of risk to providers. Mm-hmm. I think that you know health plans, and I'm talking to a lot of them now, health plans. I've always thought they're the ones that were you know in the best position to manage risk. But really, it's the position it's the providers, right? And I think this shift of risk to providers is daunting because we don't have the tools, right? And it's why these companies are coming about. And adopting solutions or point solutions or tech integrations is really hard to do. So we have these providers that are in big systems that are taking more risk, but are not in nimble situations. That's why I love Henry Ford, because Henry Ford is an academic institution, level one trauma center, integrated health system, but we have our own health plan. We have an ACO. We have an employee population with 20,000 employees at risk on, on, under under our health plan. We have Medicare Advantage. We have risk-bearing contracts with the big employers. And so I think when you can go to an institution where you can really innovate around that, and we've done that as a system, we've taken some big risks on bundle payments and other types of work. So I, I think that it it breeds the innovation that we never would have had. Right, I have a lot of friends in, in big systems, big academic systems that are ninety-nine percent fee for service. Right, they don't have that pressure to innovate, and so with this risk shifting, what COVID taught us, I think that's the most exciting time. So, the extent to which these tools can help, right? At my business school reunion a little while ago, we talked about the chatbot for I think it was Amtrak, yep. and how they did a really good job because the Amtrak chatbot presented itself as a chatbot, and the customer could interact with it knowing it's a chatbot and it could limit its questions. I sold my car on Carvana before there's like, before everything kind of hit the fan a few months ago. And I was talking to a chatbot for two weeks. I had no idea. And so I think that if you can figure it, we're talking about like drop offs, this stuff. And then he's at the end, it was like, it was a he, I think his name was something. He was like, okay, let me get a human on. I was like, wait, wait a second here. Like this is, this is just blew my mind. It's been two weeks. But I think that if like, it, we, that's what chat GPT is about, right? Like, can you op- operationalize and automate the mundane tasks of like, we still have call centers. Every, that, why that doesn't mean, like we have tons of people employed call centers across the country, like tens of thousands of jobs that, and with a workforce shortage, those folks should be put somewhere else and we should automate that process. Like like table has been out for a while. Like the secret's out that you could do this and we haven't figured out how to do that. And we're starting to, it it's another part of innovation at Enry for, the self-scheduling, and it's not just us. The key is can you self-schedule the right patient, the right provider, right? And I think that'll be the next step. But these are the kind of things that are ripe for innovation. One of the
2: fascinating things to me is that like medicine and healthcare might be one of the few places where the consumer, the patient doesn't want to be talking to a virtual avatar or, or AI. Maybe like the operational things at the call centers, they don't mind doing that, but the actual clinical care, I don't think patients would feel comfortable doing that. But in any other like industry or use case, like call centers, airlines, Banking even, you're happy to talk to a chatbot if it, it's faster, but not in medicine. You actually no. want to know that this is not just an avatar. It's a yeah, real
1: person. The other thing that's amazing is that like people aren't paying for it. Like Most people on insurance, like they're paying for it through insurance. So if you look at a, a patient with end-stage knee arthritis, right, they're in pain 24-7, 365 days a year, nonstop pain. And a knee replacement, if you look at the, let's say, an out-of-pocket cash cost, maybe, maybe 20, something thousand dollars, $25,000, $30,000 maybe. And we will go buy a Honda Accord for $30,000 that we will drive for three hours a week and have no problem paying cash, right? Or financing it. But the thought of paying for something that you will use 24 seven, 60 seconds a minute, 60 minutes, whatever it is, like that philosophy. And again, we've insured. So it's, and it's obviously a big part of it, but like the thought of paying for healthcare is really, really foreign. And the fact that we've tied healthcare to employers has been the most devastating thing because the employers don't have the tools to to manage and insurance companies get a percent, they're an ASO. Like they just get, they get a percent of the claims or whatever it is. So the more money the employers spend, right? There's no recourse of payers to like really want to bring those costs down. So these are the things that these economics are at stake. and patients have been on studies where they say, if I'm paying for insurance, I want the most expensive treatment possible. I don't care if it's any better than the other. I want the most expensive. So we have this weird situation, which is why the system is so fragmented and broken.
2: Scary
0: and fascinating at the same time. Yeah, what exactly. she was like? Really great point. It had me speechless, honestly. Eric, I wanted to ask you this. You've also been committed to giving back to the community in so many different ways. I know a lot of international service that you do in Dominican Republic and in India, for example. Why is that particularly important to you?
1: First of all, I'm impressed you knew that. I don't even know how you knew that, but I guess, I don't know where that was from. Maybe some personal statement that's online. I would first say, I, I don't think I do nearly enough. I think that as physicians, at least from my perspective, we spend all of our time toiling away and sacrificing personal gain and all of our buddies out hanging out and partying and we're studying. And I think once we get to be physicians, we get caught in that rat race and work and starting families. So I don't think I do nearly enough. And I think that that's something I need to be better at. Um, what's fascinating about going abroad and doing surgery abroad is that when I was a chief resident, I went to India and we operated on a lot of a farming community in the Gujarat. And you would do the same surgery there you do here. We did rotator coughs, tennis elbow, fractures, osteotomies, whatever it was. And we talking about like Tylenol for two days. These, <laughs> these guys are back out. out. Like it, it's, you learn that like we are a victim of our own doing. This pain as a vital sign thing put us back decades. As a resident, if a patient was in two out of 10 pain, five hours off a knee replacement, we had to push morphine, right? Okay. Because the nurse's bonuses were affected by it. If their pain scores were up too high, this was 2000, whatever, 10 to 15. We did that to ourselves. And so I think going abroad, learning what you can do with less and the satisfaction that patients get from just being heard and being taken care of, it
0: grounds you very much. But I have a long way to go in philanthropy I've know a lot more work to do. I, I don't think I do nearly enough. Awesome. So humble. All right, just being mindful of your time, Eric, let's flip over to the Fast Five lightning round. There's five questions to get to know you better for our audience. Number one is, what is your favorite book or book you've gifted the most? The Obstacle is the Way, Ryan Holiday. Uh, My uh, surgery mentor from Resonance told me
1: about it. And when I see kids with ACL tears and they think the world's going to end for them, I tell them about this book. And they'll come back and say, I read it. And you have no idea what life has in store. And if you adopt that philosophy of of what that book teaches, it it really makes it, apart from very tragic and and horrible circumstances, it helps you kind of just keep pushing forward. Like, oh, didn't work. Jocko Willink, right? His thing on life, it just says good, right? No matter what, it's just good. Move on. And so I think that book is, I think about that book all the time. And and the new surgeon, when you have a complication or something breaks, no, are you like, oh boy, like, oh, wait, nope, this had to happen so I can be better. And mm-hmm. so you just, you just it
0: changes everything. So that that would be the book. Yeah, I love it. Question two, who is a person either dead or alive you'd love to meet? Abraham Lincoln. My, nice.
1: my, my kid's four. He's got Abraham Lincoln posted on the wall. My wife wouldn't let me name the second one Abraham, but, but <laughs> he's fascinating. And and for him, it's about grit, perseverance, but leadership, right? There's a book, Lincoln on Leadership, came out a long time ago. That's huge. And I'm not saying I espouse all of it. I mean, I, I live up to all of it. I certainly try to do as much as I can, but that book, anyone who's going to be a leader, or wants to be leader, personal life, professional life, that book, study Lincoln. And that was Kenya Yamaguchi, a shoulder surgeon. He he got me onto
0: all that. Great. Question three, would you rather have super strength, super speed, or the ability to read people's minds? The minds. I'm sure, you, oh. I don't know, you probably get that
1: a lot, but uh, I could be a lot better at that. That would help me a lot. So <laughs> I, think, uh, I think
0: I'm especially bad at that. So if I can even get that a little better, it would have a lot of windfall. I like that. The superpower is just 1% of being able to read people's (laughs) minds. That's good. Question four, what is something in healthcare you believe that others might find insane?
1: We can protocol care a lot and we can predict who's going to do well. Uh, Maybe this is more orthopedic focused, but like healthcare, I mean, we all know this. It's pattern recognition, right? We just got to figure out how to protocol that, automate that in a way that's patient friendly and patient engaging. But I think we could do that. I love
0: that. Question five, if you could travel back in time to any event or moment, what would it be and why? The uh, Revolutionary War period fascinates me. I'm too much a wuss to say I would want to uh,
1: fight in the front lines with musket <laughs> fire, but like fly on the wall would be would be kind of cool. So
0: I think that would be, the, the, that part of US history is, is always fascinating to me. Uh, I love that. Surprise question six that I have, Eric. Uh, I'm curious, how do you maintain your optimism? Because I know you're, you're wearing the lion's uh, <laughs> uniform today and they haven't won since 57. So what yeah. keeps you going?
1: So I, I got really into football when I was in Boston. Uh, I was there for nine years. And so lots of parades. I mean, I so many parades. There was I I remember my OBGYN clerkship I missed one day. I played hockey because I went to the Celtics parade and I came back, there's green confetti everywhere. And so championships were very used to like, that was just, oh, that's oh, another one. I lived in, I lived in, um, on Calumet, right in, in Kenmore. Which way is, I've been with the Lions for five years. And, you know, I, I always, in the beginning, was like, how are the fans so rabid about this team when they've, they've had this record? And seeing over the last few years, like my wife asked me, she's like, you don't care about the Super Bowl anymore. I'm like, I don't care. It's like, well, when would you care? I was like, if the Lions were in it. And I was like, oh my God, it happened. <laughs> I am now on that side. Um, and so I think I think part of it just being part of the organization, all the changes they've had recently, I mean, mm-hmm. they're at the top of the town now, the the staff there. And, and you know, as, as medical docs, we're kind of, you know, we have our own little side. there. We're not like, I mean, we're not like court any any sort of athletic point of it, except for taking care of the players. But like, um, uh, but it's 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 kind of phenomenal, and it's kind of neat. Anytime I'm on a game watching from sidelines, I'm always like, "Well, this was my dream to do this," and it's kind of wild that the players are like I'm bumping into them, they're bumping into me. Where I'm the guy who usually goes on the on the golf cart to take the guy with the X-ray, and so my my. Job just not to fall off, like on TV or whatever it is. <laughs> um, and so I think that being part of it and seeing it and, and like you're really part of the organization, I think that's been that's that's why I crossed over. So cool.
0: Well, that's amazing, Eric. I want to thank you for coming on the show today. You've sprinkled so much wisdom. I hope that some of the audience out there has really understood what you were talking about with proms and can maybe incorporate that into a, a seamless workflow that's invisible and in there. Your own practice. You can find Eric on Twitter at Eric MACD M D. That's E-R-I-C-M-A-K-H-N-I-M-D. And that's a wrap for this episode of the digital patient hosted by Seamless M D. You can follow us on Twitter at Seamless M D. And if you like the podcast and you want to learn more, you can visit www.seamless.md. Eric, Dr. McNey, again, thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me.